Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I do pray that you would speak today and that I wouldn't get in the way of what you plan to say. Lord, I pray that you would lead us into all truth according to Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Throughout his life, Elijah had been guided by the word of the Lord. However, when Jezebel threatened his life after his encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, Elijah did not wait for the Lord to direct him. And despite all Elijah knew of God's faithfulness, he found himself wandering in the wilderness because of his fear. I find it so touching that even then God did not abandon his servant and God still led him to where he should be. Mount Horeb had been a significant place for God's people for some time. It was where Moses had seen the burning bush, where he had received the Ten Commandments, and also where he'd seen God's glory pass by. And in a similar way, it was also here that God would speak to his servant Elijah. In his conversation with the Lord on Mount Horeb, the extremely discouraged Elijah related four different half-truths to God, saying in 1 Kings chapter 19 verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. It was true that Elijah had been zealous for God in the past, but now he was on the run from a woman he feared and was even asking God to end his life. Not very zealous, if you ask me. Notice how Elijah saw his circumstances as being far worse than they really were. Choosing to ignore the recent revival that had broken out on Mount Carmel, Elijah complained that all of the Israelites were unfaithful and that he was the only one left who still served God. He completely forgot about Obadiah and the hundred prophets of God that he had hidden. Elijah was not alone. Elijah also claimed that everyone was trying to kill him, and yet it was really only Jezebel who was seeking to end his life at this point. Though we might laugh and shake our heads at Elijah's distorted view of his situation, I really don't think that we can blame him, because don't we also give in to that way of thinking sometimes too? When we're feeling discouraged, we also tend to view the facts selectively, And because we focus on all of the negatives, we easily believe things to be worse than they are. I love the fact, though, that even at his lowest point, God did not give up on Elijah. And you know what? He won't give up on us either. The Lord knew that his discouraged prophet needed to get back to work again, and so he very kindly gave him a new assignment in verse 15. In addition to anointing the new king of Syria, Elijah was to anoint Jehu as the next king over Israel, the king who would replace the wicked Ahab. He was also commanded to anoint a man by the name of Elisha as his own successor. 
And along with this assignment, the Lord gave him an encouragement that in fact there were as many as 7,000 in Israel who had not worshipped the false god Baal. Elijah was not a failure after all. There were many who worshipped the one true God. Of course, that did not mean that Elijah's trouble with Ahab and Jezebel was over. Far from it, scripture relates that the king and queen continued in their wicked ways. The next recorded interaction between Elijah and Ahab revolved around a terrible injustice done to a humble farmer. King Ahab had built his palace on the southern edge of the valley of Jezreel. One of his neighbors was a man by the name of Naboth. With the drought over, Ahab had it in mind to plant a vegetable garden, and he believed Naboth's land would be the ideal location. However, when he approached the farmer about purchasing the land, Naboth refused to part with his property because of his commitment to the Lord. You see, according to Jewish law, the families that worked the land were merely stewards of what really belonged to God. And according to Leviticus 25 verse 23 and Numbers 36 verse 7, it was against God's will for any person to sell the land that had been entrusted to their family. Naboth was not willing to violate God's command, and so he refused the king's request. Knowing how evil Ahab was, it was certainly an act of great courage. Truth be told, Ahab did not react well. 1 Kings chapter 21 verse 4 reveals, So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed, sulking and refusing to eat. Shocking that a king would behave in such a way like an ill-tempered child, but it just goes to show the type of man that Ahab was. His temper tantrum got Jezebel's attention, and she was more than willing to assume control, quickly promising to get him the vineyard. She forged her husband's signature and sent letters to the elders in Naboth's city, telling them to hire two scoundrels to falsely accuse the innocent Naboth of cursing both God and the king, and to bring him before the courts. She knew that according to the law, Naboth would be stoned to death for those things, and we learn later that not only did they murder the poor farmer, they also killed all of his sons as well, all because of a vegetable garden. But verse 17 reveals that their wickedness had not gone unnoticed by God because the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? I'm sure that most of us can identify with how Elijah must have felt, having to deal with the same old enemy doing the same old stuff. 
and how easy it must have been for him to feel weary, having to confront the king's sin yet again. But Elijah obeyed the Lord and met Ahab face to face as the king stood on Naboth's land planning his new vegetable garden. In 1 Kings 21 verse 19, Elijah challenged Ahab about killing an innocent man and warned him of God's judgment for it, saying, This is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, Sir, you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, he says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. This is the second time Ahab called Elijah his enemy, and to be honest, I find that really encouraging. We've seen from Elijah's own life that our walk with God, our actions, and often our words have the potential to convict others of their sin. In response, they may dislike us, they may even see us as their enemy, but their discomfort is because of their sin. And their rejection of us is really a rejection of God and his truth. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, Elijah was very direct with the king, telling him, in essence, that he'd sold his soul to the devil in doing what he had done, and the consequences would be disastrous. God declared that he would cause Ahab's blood to be spilled in the very same place Naboth's had been, and that he would wipe out all his descendants as well. God also condemned Jezebel in verse 23, saying, And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. These words had an incredible effect on the king. Verse 27 reveals that immediately when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Tearing one's clothes, putting on sackcloth and forsaking all food were the customary signs of grief in those days. Ahab did all this as an outward sign of his repentance, and apparently his repentance was genuine, for we learn in verse 28 that Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Quite honestly, I suspect that Elijah might have been rather disappointed with the news that God was willing to forgive Ahab. I think most of us have a built-in desire to see justice done, and it can actually be hard to see an enemy repent. It forces us to re-evaluate our own hearts 
to decide whether we're actually seeking justice and healing or simply wanting judgment on those who have made others suffer. Many who've been deeply wounded struggle with accepting the fact that God forgives all who turn to him in repentance. Remember how the prophet Jonah also struggled with the idea that the wicked Ninevites could repent and find favor with God? It all seemed so unfair to him. We are not given any indication of Elijah's response to Ahab's repentance, but struggling with God's willingness to forgive even the worst offender is a common problem. We need to remember what God revealed through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he would rather that they turn from their evil ways and live. God's grace to Ahab should really encourage us because it shows that no one is too far gone for the Lord. There is no sin too great that he cannot forgive. Although Ahab's repentance did temporarily delay the judgment on his house, everything that Elijah prophesied that day did eventually come to pass. Years later, Ahab's sons would all die violent deaths, and the blood of one son was actually spilled in Naboth's vineyard. Jezebel did not escape God's judgment either and died in the most gruesome way. You may remember that when Elijah met with God on Mount Horeb, he'd been instructed to anoint Jehu as king over Israel, even while Ahab was still ruling. As it happened, Ahab was soon killed in battle, and as Jehu rode into Jezreel to take up the throne, Jezebel began to mock him from a window in the wall of the fortress. Two of her attendants, who chose to side with the new king, Jehu, pushed her out of the window down to the street below, where her body lay unburied by the wall of Jezreel, and she suffered the very fate Elijah had promised, a dishonorable death for a dishonorable woman. I think that there's so much that we can learn from Elijah, though, as he dealt with this wicked ruling family. For we remember he was a person just like us. I'm sure he tired of their wickedness, and yet he continued in steadfast obedience to the Lord's commands. Doing good is hard work, especially when we begin to doubt whether it matters. But Elijah persevered, and so should we. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul also spoke of this in Galatians 6, verse 9, where he urged God's people that no matter what we face, we are not to become weary in doing good, but we're to hold to the truth that at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Elijah was willing to persevere even though he would not see the fulfillment of all that God had promised during the course of his ministry. You'll remember that on Mount Horeb, God had also instructed Elijah that he was to anoint his successor. 
I can't help but wonder how Elijah must have felt when he heard that. You know, I think that some who are listening can identify with how hard it is as we age to see God call younger, gifted people to take our place. And yet, we know that it is the right thing for us to do, to make room for others and their gifts in the body of Christ. I don't find it at all unlikely that this was a difficult process for Elijah as well, especially as he realized that the end of his own ministry was fast approaching. He very gracefully followed the Lord's command, though, and never stopped in his own walk of faith as he began to invest in Elisha's success. Just as an aside, you may have wondered why these two prophets had such similar sounding names. It seems confusing to us, right? But the name Elijah means my God is Yahweh, and Elisha means my God saves. So in reality, their two names together convey the message God wanted to give his people through them. God is Yahweh, and he saves. Well, let's look at the call of Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. Immediately after God had spoken to him, Elijah went down from Mount Horeb and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. The fact that Elisha was working the fields, driving one of 12 pairs of oxen being worked that day, really reveals that he must have been from a wealthy family. In the Old Testament, prophets wore cloaks, also known as mantles, and they were a symbol of their calling by God. When Elijah threw his cloak around the shoulders of Elisha, it was an act that needed no interpretation. It was a very clear indication that the same calling that had been upon Elijah's life would be transferred to Elisha. And notice, Elisha wastes no time in following the prophet, seeking only to go back to say goodbye to his family. Verse 20. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Elijah gave the young man permission to go back to honour his parents and bid them farewell. Some have suggested that by saying, what have I done to you, the prophet Elijah was saying, in effect, this isn't my idea, this is God's and it's up to us to obey him. He was actually giving Elisha an opportunity to make sure that he knew what he was doing and that he was doing it for the right reason. And notice Elisha's response. 
he immediately slaughtered his own oxen and cooked them over a fire he made from his ploughing equipment. Not only was he willing to follow Elijah and accept God's call on his life, but Elisha was also willing to put an end to his old way of living. There would be no turning back once his oxen and plough were gone. And when we make our own decision to follow the Lord, it should be just as serious. Some people want to follow God while still trying to hold on to their past. But Elisha shows us that our old way of living must be left behind in order to truly become the person that God wants us to be. Scholars believe that Elijah and Elisha ministered together for years as the older prophet mentored the younger. When Elijah knew that the end of his ministry was fast approaching, he chose to visit several different groups of prophets in order to say goodbye, taking Elisha with him. Their journey took them to the prominent sites of Gilgal, Bethel and Jericho before they finally came to the Jordan River. Several times along that journey, Elijah tried to persuade Elisha to stay behind with the other prophets. And one begins to suspect that Elijah is testing the younger prophet's resolve. As a good teacher, he knew the importance of persistence. And it seems as if he may have been assessing Elisha's readiness to fully step into his calling by doing this. Each time Elisha was invited to remain behind, he stubbornly insisted on accompanying Elijah, declaring, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Several of the prophets Elijah had stopped to say goodbye to knew Elijah's days were ending and they followed along behind until they reached the Jordan River. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 8 tells us what happened next. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, Suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, and Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of prophets from Jericho who were watching said, 
The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Elisha's request was that he receive double the anointing that had been upon Elijah. What he asked for was a difficult thing, but it was not impossible. Elijah knew that the anointing was God's to give, not his, and that Elisha would need to maintain his focus on the Lord if that was to happen. Verse 11 details one of the most famous scenes of all of Scripture, when suddenly the skies opened and a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared miraculously taking Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. All the while, Elisha's gaze remained fixed on his mentor, and when he finally picked up Elijah's mantle and split the waters of the Jordan with it, as Elijah had done, everyone acknowledged that the same power that had rested upon Elijah very evidently now rested upon him. Interestingly, whereas Elijah spoke for God for 10 years and performed eight miracles, Elisha would speak God's message for 20 years, and he performed 16 miracles, a double portion, just as he had requested. And as for Elijah, well, though he was taken to heaven, he did not physically die as we all do and it wasn't the end of his earthly appearances either. In fact, Elijah is one of the very few people in the Bible who appears in both the Old and the New Testaments. He appears in the Gospels, speaking with Moses and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration about Christ's coming death, and he has a further role to play in prophecy. The scriptures reveal that he will return to the earth prior to Christ's second coming, and many believe him to be one of the two witnesses who are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Elijah is such a wonderful example of stubborn faith and steady obedience. Throughout his life, he continued to faithfully follow the Lord even when things were difficult and when no one paid attention to him. His life was not really any different to ours. He knew both the highs and the lows of following the Lord. He knew what it was like to depend on God for his daily provision. Though he had his moments of weakness, Elijah knew what it was to keep his eyes firmly fixed on God, the author and perfecter of his faith, despite the impossible situations he sometimes had to face. He knew what it was like to persevere, even when he was hated and rejected for his relationship with God. And choosing not to see it as the end of his usefulness to the Lord, he was willing to invest in the life of his successor, Elisha. He was willing to see God's bigger picture, even when that meant that someone would far exceed him in their earthly ministry. But most of all, he was a man of unrelenting prayer. As we end this look at the prophet Elijah, it's my hope that we should learn to pray with power and persistence as he did. 
that we learn to have faith in the Lord, even when people don't act as they should, even when nothing makes sense in our lives. I pray that we would always trust God to order our steps and that we would be willing to let go of our past and embrace the future that he has for us. I pray that we would always trust God to order our steps and that we would be willing to let go of our past and embrace the future that he has for us. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for the testimony of Elijah, a person who was just like us. Lord, thank you that even in his weakness, you were faithful Lord, I praise you for him and how he kept his eyes on you, the author and perfecter of his faith. And I pray that we would do likewise. Lord, that you would use us to influence others as you used him, all to the glory of Christ's name alone. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.